This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Time is hard and I know that it's true. But if you pick yourself up, that's all you got to do. Things can be much better. It was in 1979 when Peter Tosh released the album Mystic Man and one of the most controversial songs at the time. It was called The Day the Dollar Die, obviously banned in South Africa, scratched out in the libraries of the South African Broadcasting Corporation. But of course, in later years, through Radio Bob and Radio Mava too, we could play the songs. And obviously, there were rebel record uh, bars in this country where we could buy those songs, where we could buy those albums. The day the dollar die, time for division is over, unemployment is high because of this dollar aid. And those were some of the agenda items on the 15th edition of the BRICS summit that was convened by the chairman, President Cyril Ramaphosa, here in Johannesburg, Santin. It was about the issue of expansion, but it was about the issue of the de-dollarization. Not as yet, but can you see the prophetic words of Peter Tosh? And he was saying, the day the dollar die, things will be fine. Are they going to be fine? That's why some of the decisions have been taken uh, as part of the declaration of the 15th BRICS summit pertaining to that. So to help us reflect on many, many issues that were discussed um, at the BRICS summit, let's welcome Dr. T.K. Poe, political analyst and lecturer at Vets University. Uh, Dr. Poe, good morning, welcome. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Tumi Sunukwane, a political analyst and associate professor at the University of South Africa. Prof. Tumi, good morning. Welcome. Prof. Sanukwane, are you there with us? Okay. Good morning. Uh, okay, thank you very much for, for joining us. Dr. Poe, let's start with you. Um, two major issues, but I want, because we started with this uh, song by Peter Tosh, The Day the Dollar Die, the de-dollarization, it was on the BRICS agenda. And the resolution taken so far is that uh, governors of the central banks of the BRICS countries, the five BRICS countries, including their five, including the five ministers, they must start working on a program of making sure that we come up with the with the BRICS currency. And hopefully, in uh, October next year, they might have to make those presentation. 
Do you think in a year it is sufficient times for the ministers and the governors of the central banks to come up with these complex issues of de-dollarization? No, no, thanks for having me. Look, I think maybe we just need to start from, from the end mission, right? Which is to say, while it is a noble mission, and I think it's something that will eventually happen, you, you don't simply just move away from how 60% of the world trades, which is in US dollars. So, uh, and uh, the discussions have already started. So uh, if you're saying, are they going to, in the next two or three years, get rid of uh, us trading in US dollars? No, that's not going to happen. But what I think I did pick up from the conference is what they're saying is, can these now these central reserve banks start to actually, in play, because what they really do is they model this economically. Can they start to say, listen, if we want to trade with China, model what that looks out and tell us what are the, you know, the risks and what are the benefits. So that can easily be done within a year where you actually just put systems in place and you design to actually say, okay, if this were to happen, this is how we address it. So I'm confident that they can do that in terms of that's how most reserve banks in the world work, which is you model risk, you see what it looks like. But now the issue, what are they going to present next year? What they're going to present is saying, this is what the models are telling us, and these are the mechanisms to use. But I think as a citizenry, what we should not get excited about is the belief that in the next two or three years, the dollar just disappears. This is going to be a long-term thing. And what these guys are going to give us next year, based on what has been said here, is can you make sure that our reserve banks and our economy start to get used to this idea of that, look, most of the denominations and trade is not going to be in dollars and what it's, what it's going to look like, and actually to give the private sector and governments confidence that, look, this is doable. Yeah. Professor Nugwani, listening to the speeches of the five presidents, I think they delivered about three speeches each, okay? But consistently, particularly from Russia, from Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, the issue of um, this BRICS currency, he was emphasizing a lot. And coupled with it, he was mentioning the fact that um, his country, Russia, is suffering from unjust sanctions. And he's saying that um, it's about time that we start to equalize and normalize the world. The issue of a unipolar uh, philosophy, it must be challenged. And understanding that Russia is currently facing uh, sanctions, you've got, for instance, the the, the president of Cuba as well, uh, Miguel Canel, who are saying that uh, Cuba has has suffered so much in terms of that, encouraging the BRICS Bank, uh, the, 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 the new development bank of BRICS to be aggressive in terms of countering the IMF as well as the World Bank. But from considering that Russia will be hosting or will be chairing next year's summit, are you going to see maybe the Russians pushing hard towards this issue of de-dollarization, just like consistently he was mentioning it in this summit? Yes, you know, from my observation, I think that that's what we are going to observe in this at least coming month to a year. And, and I support what uh, Dr. Poe is saying. Because remember the idea behind that, of emphasizing that, it has been identified, uh, the dollar itself as a currency has been identified as a risk, at least in as far as uh, geopolitics are concerned and economic dynamics. So uh, it is at the best interest, especially of Russia or any other country that has identified this geopolitical risk to emphasize and to seek for agent acceleration of uh, de-dollarization because that will, uh, you know, relieve pressure from 
Russia itself, but even reliance of other nations will be removed uh, from the uh, United States and the West. So it's very important that uh, for them to see that happening uh, very quick, very soon, because it will assist them in how they politicize the economy of the world and militarization of the world. So I think, uh, yes, it is at the best interest of Russia to do that. Yeah. So, Dr. Powe, you know, speaking to some of the delegates who didn't want to go on record, but uh, so some high-ranking officials, for instance, that way, uh, that, that, that I was engaging uh, with them about this particular subject. Uh, for instance, one person was saying that, uh, you know, maybe we should also focus on the issue of a payment system, like a global payment system, saying that what stops Russia and India, for instance, trading in their local currencies. You know, it can, you know, in the meantime, as part of the test, they can work out a payment system. So I find that I said, hmm, this is very interesting because they keep on saying we need to to differentiate between a payment system and a, a BRICS currency. Do you think it's something that they can start working on in terms of trading in their local currencies in the meantime, while the the governors and the finance ministers are working on the modalities of this uh, uh, BRICS currency? Well, it's interesting that you, you've, you've picked two countries that are actually having to do this, uh, which is uh, Russia and India. You note that they've got a long-standing historical you know, relationship in much the same way South Africa and the ANC always speaks about the USSR, which was many, not just Russia. Uh, and th- that's what they've been having to do. And India has actually been benefiting from this by getting discounted a gas rate. So it's something that you can do. Uh, however, look, it's always important to put things within context. When you look at the what India what is, India is a, a billion, it's a billion dollar market. It's a billion dollar market with a billion uh, with a billion population. So their ability to do that with Russia. It, 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 they can do it because at this current moment in time, the economy can allow for it. Now, when you put in South Africa, yes, we have got a billion, one can say a billion dollar economy, but the, the, the economy is not at that point where we can do that. So for places like Russia, yes, and Russia and India, they can do that. Iran has been doing that for the longest because they are also under heavy sanctions. So, But the key issue is, is not to rush it to say this must now be the norm for everyone. Certain countries can do it. And especially for a market like South Africa, which is highly exposed to your Western Europe and United States economy, it'll be important that the Reserve Bank sort of assist South Africa to get into this, not something it can quickly jump into. Can it be done? We are seeing it being done in India and Russia to answer your question directly. Can South Africa do it now? I think it's one of those things where we'd have to ask the Reserve Bank to basically guide us through 20 minutes after the hour 10, I'm in conversation with uh, Dr. Kakiso T.K. Powe, political analyst and lecturer at Vet University, as well as Dumis uh, Nukwane, a political analyst and associate professor at the University of South Africa. So, Prof. Dumi, let's uh, flip the coin a bit and focus on the other resolution, the expansion of BRICS. They spoke about the first step, okay? The first step, including the addition of uh, six members. And everybody's grappling with this <laughs> question in terms of, do we know the criteria that was used? From your If you use your, your tools of analyzing this particular selection of the six countries, do you, can you come up with things that might have swayed the five BRICS uh, block countries to finally select these uh, six additional ones, being Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, United Arab Emirates, Iran, and Saudi Arabia? 
Look, from where I'm sitting, I think uh, the reasons behind that, especially in regard to Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the UAE, you know, is because that you, um, the, the three are known members of OPEC, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. So this, um, you know, it hints a, a new fuel paradigm and gives that uh, new fuel, fuel uh, shift for, 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 for BRICS, uh, especially minding uh, that Russia, China, and Brazil are already part of, of BRICS. So I think that will be the biggest region, reason for, for, for having taken that decision or for their inclusion or immediate inclusion. Then if you look into uh, countries like Ethiopia, of course, People will argue that the Ethiopia is one of the fastest growing economies in, in Africa, but for political reasons, because the head offices of uh, AU are, ba- are based there, so it makes political sense that the head of the headquarters of AU are part of the uh, you know of the of BRICS, especially discussion and discourses of of BRICS, and and, and of course. Argentina, it assists also in terms of geopolitical uh, ge- ge- influence, especially its relations to Brazil and so on and so forth, especially on the south. So I think those uh, are some of the reasons or agent reasons that might have, you know, um, made uh, Brits, current BRICS members to take that particular decision. Interesting indeed. Talking about, you know, Ethiopia being the headquarters of the... Um, uh, the AU. Um, Dr. Poe, I want us to focus on something that came out very strongly um, as part of the resolutions. The fact that they, they, they raise concerns about the structure of the United Nations Security Council. Okay. And talking about some few countries that have veto powers and most importantly, Africa not having a representative in the United Security, uh, um, United Security Council. But starting with this first one of the G20 summit that is, uh, that's going to be hosted by India, there's a push that, uh, uh, that the African Union must, must get a seat in the G20. And India are the host, and they seem to be very forceful in, in terms of that. What do you think should Africa uh, secure the particular seat? What role will the continent play in the G20 politics? Well, look, I think it's an interesting question. I'll probably take a bit of a contrarian view. So, look, yes, the African Union does represent the, the continent as a whole, and maybe what they're thinking is, look, many of the key African issues, yeah, we obviously speak about liquid financial flows, uh, silence the guns, which is uh, the, the motto for this year. Those types of issues will be able to be brought to the table more, you know, more u- as, a, as a united force, you know, uh, to say, look, these are the key interests of Africa and the like, therefore it makes sense. However, you know, I, I've always been a bit hesitant to, to move towards tables of power when you yourself don't necessarily have, you know, economic might. Because uh, what it does do is now us as citizens of the continent get get excited say finally our issues are going to be able to be brought to a table where people can actually address them and then over time if it doesn't happen we become dissuaded and therefore we now start to look negatively upon this i think what the african union needs to do when going to the table is to actually put the terms of reference out there for for many of these countries to agree on one you're not going to be able to force a lot of these g20 countries into giving new concessions 
off the bat. That's not going to happen. So put maybe four or five realistic things that you know that you can do. One of them is, and I think it's going to become quite pertinent going forward, a lot of these G20 countries that seem to want to play on the continent and make it their playground, that almost needs to be stopped or discouraged in a more strategic way. So for me, it's while it's good to have a AU there, it's only good if we were clear what, what the agenda is and you can actually take wins forward. Don't just be there because they're like, oh, well, you know what? We're inviting you to the table. Come sit here. But when it comes to actual power politics, you've got nothing to give. Indeed. And in terms of uh, tactics and strategy, it is always imperative for for a bloc like the AU to negotiate from a position of strength. So, and I do appreciate the fact, Dr. TK, to say that uh, if we are dormant as citizens of the country, that's why these politicians are getting away with everything. They decide what needs to be on the agenda, uh, and, and, and normally it is to their own benefit and so on, to their own benefit and their surrogates. But the question is, how do we bring about the voice of the citizens into these important discussions? Obviously, it has to start from home, because even at home, in respective countries, citizens are not playing that aggressive role. That is why politicians have got a blank check. So how do we start this project of national consciousness, starting with the citizens, so that whatever things that are taken at a static level, at a continental level, even at a global level, but it has some kind of an influence from the citizenry? Prof. Nogan? Yes, you are correct, but you see the issues that... uh, some people actually are asking now, do our citizens actually know what is happening currently in the country? The, the likelihood is yes, together with a no. I'm saying yes and no because some will have a knowledge of what has been happening. Others might not even have that because it does not translate directly into the uh, changing of their lifestyle or their, their livelihood. So it is correct to say people might know, others might not be knowing. But the point that you are making is correct to say we must consciously move into the grassroots level and make sure that people understand the ideas behind breaks. If we are able to grasp the ideas behind breaks slowly, surely, tomorrow we'll be able to build a better understanding of our people and their participation eventually into the programs that South Africa as a country, besides other countries or members of BRICS, as a country will be able to benefit through the participation and contribution of its own citizens. And uh, up until we reach that stage, then we will have a problem of it being a theoretical discussion or something far-fetched from the ordinary citizens. So it's important that programs should now start to be rolled within the different countries who are members of BRICS so that all of us move together because there are also cultural implications in this particular trajectory. Indeed, 28 minutes after the hour 10. You know, I recall having a discussion in our political science class about this speech. I started my program with the speech of Harold Macmillan, the, the wind of change speech of, of, of 3 February 1960 by the British Prime Minister. So, Dr. Poy, I want you to, to comment on this based on this uh, some extract from that speech. He said, Macmillan, I quote, we have seen the awakening of national consciousness in peoples who have for centuries lived in dependence upon some other power. 
15 years ago, this movement spread through Asia. Many countries there of different races and civilizations present, uh, sorry, pressed their claim to an independent national life. And um, he went on to say that uh, today the same thing is happening in Africa and the most striking of all the impressions I have formed since I left London a month ago is of the strength of this African national consciousness. In different places, it takes different forms, but it is happening everywhere. The wind of change is blowing through this continent, and whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must all accept it as a fact, and our national policies must take account of it. So, the issue of national consciousness. I want to position it in what I've heard from the BRICS leaders, talking about the global the global south, saying the global north have dominated for so long and we haven't benefited. Now it seems as if there's a rise of national consciousness within the global south. But because we're going to the headlines, we will come back to that question after that. Let's cross over to Ntlantla Suhume with the 1030 News Headlines. Power Talk on Power 98.7. Okay, 26 minutes before the hour, 11 o'clock, continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Kahiso T.K. Poe, as well as uh, Tumi Sonokwane. Before the break, I pose this particular question. Uh, Peter will put them live on the air. Uh, based on uh, the speech, it's an extract from the speech by a British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, uh, 3 February 1960, addressing the Parliament of South Africa, that is the the, the apartheid uh, parliament at the time. Uh, it was 12 years after apartheid was introduced in 1948, so it was in 1960. So the little extract I want to, to, uh, to focus on, uh, Professor Poe, is that he went on to say the wind of change is blowing through this African continent and whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must all accept it is a, uh, it is a fact and our national policies must take account of it. And we have seen at that time we had national, we can say national conscientized leaders, your Patrice Lumumbas, your Kwame Nkrumahs and so on and so forth. But if you look at the state of our of our countries in our continent in terms of governance, it is problematic. I gave example of uh, uh, Zimbabwe now where the deputy uh, president was addressing the summit yesterday talking how free and fair the elections are and whatever. And we know that it is contrary to that. But this national consciousness, I want to bring it to the issue of the uh, BRICS where they're talking about the global north having been dominating for years to the less benefit of the global south. Now it's like it's a you know, a national consciousness of the global south. How should we look at that? Well, well I look at it in, in two to three ways. One, I think that there was, has been a bit of a consciousness about the global south. I mean, you have to go back to the Bandung Conference, I think it was in the 1950s, where, look, the majority of the world was colonized by Western European nations. So there's always been that that consciousness to say, listen, we, we are, we've all kind of suffered similar things. Obviously, South Africa's one is a bit unique. I think that's why we was called colonialism of a special type. So that's fine. But then secondly, I think maybe where, I think the African continent, here yeah, I'll be very direct, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where it's always gone a bit of awry and where it'll be interesting when now you have China, you've got India and other powers that are not traditionally North, 
who want to do business in in sub-Saharan Africa is the key issue of how do we interpret that? And I think the way you've put it is correct. It's We need to interpret it to say, if we don't get our houses in order, it's very likely that we could go through the same routes again. Yeah, indeed. We need to get our house in order so that we can negotiate from a position of strength. And if you look at some of the tweets, for instance, some people are very pessimistic about the uh, the whole issue, uh, saying that we are not organized. So I'm going to uh, refer to um, some of the tweets that came through. Um, like, yeah, I think Freedom Rassim P, for instance, he says, Bramurio, you can never replace original with fake. We can't replace America with China. Never. Dollar will never die because f- uh, future generations will come and rectify the mistakes that was done by NC Grannies. South Africa is contributing nothing in that BRICS. We are poor. And Karabo um, is saying, we are going to buy oil with within BRICS 11 as South Africa. Okay, no, that is the question, I think. Uh, obviously, those modalities are still to be worked out. But yeah, it will be very interesting to do that. Africa must think, saying people will respect each other the day the dollar die. And... Uh, independent historian Malisela saying, reflecting on 65 years of neocolonialism, it is apparent that the source of the wind of change Macmillan referred to was Europe and not Africa. Well, he's a historian. We'll have to, yeah, well, we'll, we'll take your word for it um, there. I want us to, to move, Senogwani, to the animal farm syndrome. <laughs> um, that uh, some uh, that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than the others. You know, the famous George Orwell book, The Animal Farm. I think it came in a form of a of a statement stroke question from the president of Namibia yesterday. <laughs> and I chuckled a bit, you know, when I saw him making that particular statement. Even the president, uh, Ramaphosa, chuckled a bit to that. And then he responded immediately because the president, H. Genkop, was saying, we are complaining about the, 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 the lack of equality within the United Nations Security Council. And we are trying uh, to, to push for reforms. To, to push for to to push for reforms within the United Nations Security Council. So, what guarantees do we have that this BRICS uh, is not going to behave like a United Nations Security Council, where the five original members—is it five or six? Yeah, whatever. Five. Where 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 the original members of BRICS will have more powers than the pluses and so on and so forth. Do you think it was a legitimate uh, consent to, to be raised there? Well, knowing that, uh, you know, I was surprised that President Ramaphosa, you know, answered immediately because I thought maybe it would need some kind of a consultation. But he said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. We are equal within BRICS. Was it a fair question to answer, Prof, to me? I mean, to, look, uh, to pose. Look, it, it, it is relevant, but the, the reality of the matter that it, that is that perhaps not now. What, what is happening currently with the BRICS is that we see a countering of exclusion by the BRICS nations, not, not necessarily only BRICS nations, but everyone who is against this uh, Western domination. We, and, and I think by having this alliance called BRICS, 
it assists in balancing world power, but also it assists in neutralizing domination. And I think if you move from that point of understanding, you will understand why there is a need for, for BRICS now. Of course, it doesn't take away the reality that there will be challenges among the nations of BRICS themselves. But there is a bigger picture, an immediate threat to world geopolitics and world economics. And that is domination by others, especially the West. So I think from where we are sitting now, where we are standing, we should uh, view it as such. And especially where, you know, and, and I think you spoke very well about the issue of the inclusion of, or, you know, of other uh, powers or so economies into the yeah, U, UN, especially Security Council, and also the issue of, of representation of emerging markets. And, and if we look into that, we will, of course, all agree that there is a need for representation, especially in the UN, so that the balance of uh, power is uh, still working and operating at, uh, you know, at least balancing at, uh, to some extremes. Indeed, you can get in touch with us uh, and converse with my special guest there, Dr. Kaiso T.K. Boer, political analyst and lecturer at VET University. Also, Dumi Senokwane, political analyst and associate professor at the University of South Africa. Yeah, get in touch with us on 0861-987-000. You can also send us an X for my tweet at PowerFM987 using the hashtag PowerTalk or tweet me directly at Murio Muriano as I stand in for the Queen of Hearts, Lara Tombele. Murio Sanyane on Power 98.7. All right, 17 minutes uh, before the hour, 11 o'clock. We'll start with, uh, with the calls. Let's go to Jan in Silver Lakes. Good morning, Jan. Welcome. Uh, Locksman. Yes, sir. I'm good on you. Like it, man. Uh, yesterday, when I had bricks on TV, <laughs> invited me there. Hey, I wish I had those powers, yeah, man. Hey, let's try and make sense out of these bricks. The benefit towards um, businesses on the ground, ex- except only the elite that are making deals. Um, Uh, you see, the way it is is that um, I'm worried that if we don't talk about what makes, how do we benefit out of these deals, than to be talking about the 30% of the world economy being here. What are we talking about actually here? Yeah, that's an interesting take, and I think it's been raised before. Thanks very much, Jan. Uh, so, Dr. T.K. Poe, I think, yeah, it was also mentioned during uh, the open line now, people saying that how do we ensure that opportunities, particularly economic opportunities, filter down to the people? I know that they've also mentioned that uh, this BRICS partnership is not only about political and and uh, trade and investment relations, but it's all about people's to people's relations, but also extending to areas of the creative arts and sports and so on. But the question that people are posing is that how do we ensure that the ordinary people on the ground also found a way of benefiting from this partnership? Well, I think that's always been the case, especially for South African foreign policy. I had the pleasure, I think, last month of actually 
just touring China via an invite. And what I can tell you is they're very deliberate when they sign these things. It's not they don't sign because it sounds fun. They already know who of their businesses, what of their sectors, and the country that they would want to be in. Now, I think what citizens, and I think it's correct for South African citizens in particular to start to ask this question is to say, look, we have spent money this week. Make no mistake, uh, that show that we saw there was was from our taxpayers' money, which you, I hear you got to derive the benefit. I, like other people, when, when was not invited, uh, so <laughs> we hope you had a, had a good time. <laughs> but... but I'm a media, that's well. <laughs> yeah, but the, the question people ask is to say, South Africa has signed many, many treaties. Yeah. And there does come a point where we have to say, let's quantify and let's see how it works. What I would have liked to see, and like, I'll, I'll give gov- government the benefit of the doubt, is to say, look, we have signed X treaties with China, we've signed this for, for BRICS. And what we are saying is what China and India do well is manufacturing, which we cannot compete in, but what they what they have is a population which is growing as a middle class. Therefore, they need almost like what the middle class like, these lovely, shiny things. Let's say, look, let's locate a factory in the free state, which we know is undergoing a huge recession because the mines have left. Let's locate a factory in the Northern Cape. As in, let us be deliberate about what we sign, and let's locate it to a region and a municipality and put the right investment there. Because to simply sign without knowing what the next step is that's not leadership. That, that's folly. And I think that's why South Africans have the right to say, okay, quantify this. Show me what this looks like. Because if we don't do that, I can guarantee you BRICS is going to be like the many other treaties South Africa has. And that's not what we want. Because I think we, the onus is upon us as a country to take advantage of this. The advantage is not just going to put itself on the table. You're quite right. And I underline the word. Um, I underline the word deliberate, you know, deliberate. And that's what the Chinese are doing. In this country, for instance, we have a dedicated ministry of small development. And uh, you ask yourself questions. Do we have this deliberate thing? That is why, Prof. Tumis Nugan, I was perplexed by Dr. Um, the Premier of the Northern Cape, Zamanisol, you know? Zamanisol is the Premier of the Northern Cape. And during the elective conference of the Chinese Communist Party, the efficiency in running that conference, and Dr. Zamanisol says, I wish we could learn how the Chinese are dealing with the credentials. My goodness me. At the time, I said, Dr. Sol, there are far bigger things you should be learning from the Chinese than to deal with the credentials. So, I mean, I'm just saying, this deliberate thing that Prof. Po was talking about, why are we not doing that thing? Why are we not laser-focused and say, this is what we need to do? pertaining to the small businesses. And it brings back again to us as citizens, the SMMEs, small businesses, what are you doing about it? Because we have a BRICS business council, the South African chapter. So my question, Prof. Snugan, is that what is it that we can do to make sure that we don't just allow our government to sign all these many treaties? Some people are phoning in to say, 
we have been told of billions of rents of uh, the infrastructure investment, but we don't see it. We go to the free state, the roads are gone, you go anywhere in the country. Where are these things going? So what must we do to make sure that a government don't just sign treaties that we don't know about and it doesn't really matter whether those treaties are, are executed or not? It's a, it's a big question. I, I sometimes ask myself whether our leaders, are they patriotic enough? Do they have love for their nation? Do they have love for their country and uh, their people? I think that's the fundamental question because if you are patriotic, if you've got love for yourself, for, you know, the, the, the citizens of South Africa, the people that you are leading, you will always want to put their interest first before anyone else. And I think that's where we are lacking. If you want to compare with China, China has the interest of its own nation. It puts its nation first before anyone else. It is for that reason that wherever China goes out of China, the citizens of China's interests are put first. Even if they arrive in South Africa, they are clear with their interest, Chinese first. The same will apply with Indians and elsewhere, even Russians themselves. So I, the difference with Africans is that when we go out there, it seems that we do not have the same interest or the interest of our own people or our own country. And up until we reach such a time where we understand that we need to be patriotic, we need to have love for ourselves. In fact, loving our own people or South Africans or the citizens of this country or the people that you are leading is love for themselves. And I think up until such a time that we've got a clear mind shift and cultural shift, we'll never get it right because the cultural consciousness will assist us to translating into economics and politics in general. Che Guevara says, the revolution is made through love. At the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. Let me go to Pretoria. Hamlet, good morning. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Murillo. What a wonderful conversation. Murillo, of course, there are a lot of, you know, benefits, you know, uh, uh, you know, by just being a member of uh, BRICS. And South Africa was quite, um, you know, strategic to be there in the earlier days of, of, of BRICS. But, you know, I think Prof's talking about deliberate. You know, I've been to China as well, looking at how they industrialize and how government has a clear plan of industrialization with, with short, medium, long term, you know. And this is a deliberate, you see it on a daily basis in China. But what they have done, they've realized that their production capacity within China is growing, but they want to take it outside China. And I agree with Prof, and I believe that that's where South Africa can, can unlock that type of value to say, you know, South Africa, you know, economic activities are highly concentrated in about three, you know, regions. To decentralize, remember South Africa essentially is not just a market uh, 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 for massive production of China. The entire continent is. And, and South Africa is strategically, from an infra- infrastructure point of view, to can say, yes, we can partner, but the downstream value chain. This is where South African uh, companies and businesses, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, in terms of employment and all of that, industrialize and decentralize economic activities to your free state, to your Mpumalanga, to your Northwest, to your Northern Cape, and thus making sure that, uh, you know, the, the, the production, you, you, you build a production capacity. 
these special economic zones, and I think that's where it starts, because of I think that they're underutilized. And, and we have seen a lot of treaties that the government have signed, and I believe and I agree with the prof that uh, we must be deliberate. But to do that, South Africa itself must have a plan that is clear on how to industrialize. Going to the Chinese, you know, but as we uh, sit right now, I don't think we, we have such a plan in place. And, uh, and I'm quite sure, because I research quite thoroughly on, 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 on why South Africa's economy is not growing. It's because of we have no industrialization plan. Mm, yeah, indeed. Hamlet Pretoria, thank you very much always for your great insights. Komuto Mitra and your question comment. Welcome. I Koto, okay, I think we lost Koto there. And uh, <laughs> speaking about manufacturing, for instance, I mean, Gauteng have come up with this um, economic development plan and issues of township economy. And I don't know how many MECs of economic development we have spoken to about the industrial sites in the, in the former homelands, for instance. You look at the Harangua business industrial site is decaying. You mentioned the, the free state, I think, and so on and so forth. And without a deliberate action, those things are not going to happen, which is, which is quite, quite unfortunate. So, Dr. Paul, let's talk also about the issue of people-to-people relations. Okay. Because they said we are BRICS members, but we are not only focusing on the on the economics, and um, we are not only focusing on t- on, on the political sides, but people-to-people relations. But the other is- issue I want to focus up on also, it's about the issue of appropriate conditions for business to thrive, and even for ordinary people to live. Because crime in this country, it's, it's bad. It's it's increasing all the time. But you look at countries like China, how they even deal with corruption. Even within the main party itself, you, are, you commit any form of corruption, you, find, you, you, you get a firing squad or, you, or they, you, you know, you, you're thrown into jail and the keys is thrown away. They are not tolerant to issues like that. But in our country, there's too much crime. There is this high level of corruption. Even after the Zondo Commission, you thought people would say, hey, guys, but it seems as if I, the Zondo Commission was not even there. So, Dr. T.K. Po, how do we start dealing with these issues? People's issues, but at the same time, this lawlessness that we see, including the levels of corruption within, within the political elite. I'll answer it at two levels, at, at the micro level, which is where you and I involved. One, I think we, and the prof sort of touched on it, which is if you don't take yourself seriously as an individual and as a citizen, don't be surprised that people take advantage of you. In this regard, like I said, I come from Everton in, in, in the Val. And the one thing that, that breaks one's heart is the fact that look, we don't have a lot of leaders. In fact, it's minimal leaders. But the question at a micro level is to say, okay, if you know that this is fact, what are we doing differently? And what I always encourage people is to say, look, one, do you, do you know your counselor? Let's start there. Let's, let's learn the, the, the issue of learning to hold your counselor accountable, learning to tell the counselor, look, the meeting is on Monday. If you're not here on Monday, we will take a different action. Because I think once we inculcate that thing, starting from the ward level, from your municipal level, that's when we start to say we are owners. 
in this. We're not. We're, I think that's one of the, You know, they're not ruling us. We and I think that's always the problem. That it's always as though we, we are serving them, not the other way around. Yes. So that's on a micro level. What you and I can do in our daily lives, whether you're in the township or rural areas, let's get that power structure correct. They are serving us, and we are the ones that need to be dictating meetings. And then at, at a macro level, look, and I'm, I'm sure you, you've, you've done this long enough to know that look. South Africa, we all know South Africa's problems. We don't need another person to write a PhD about South Africa's problems. The issue is, how do we affect them? And for this, I think we totally need a different, a different approach to how we view the Constitution. I think in certain instances, the Constitution is a hindrance for development. Two, we need smaller, not bigger, which is to say, no more, no more big plans. Just tell us the five things South Africa is struggling with. Unemployment, crime, unequal regional things. Put government to work towards those things. Don't give us many more things. Don't tell us that you want to have a, a, a month of this, a month of that. No, work on these five things. Let that be a core criteria. Let every municipality, province, and institution, and also get the private sector involved to say, guys, we are committing to the next 10 years. This is what we're doing. If the constitution is a problem, the constitution will be dealt away with. Because that's how you get development. We don't sit here and start saying, oh, well, you know, the Constitution says, no, no. If the Constitution is a problem, we get rid of it. Yeah. And if unions are a problem, we get rid of it. If you are a problem, if I'm a problem, you get rid of it. And yeah. that's how I think we, we can do it, micro and, and micro, macro and micro. Yeah, indeed. As we conclude, uh, Professor Nukwani, we're left with only a minute. One thing that I observed, wow, that outreach, the BRICS outreach, seeing presidents like Maduro of Venezuela, uh, President Canel of Cuba and all these other presidents participating. For me, it was some kind of a show of force. Do you think that it's a way, It's a, it was more like a political statement that the BRICS plus wants to go bigger than just the six that has been invited into the, uh, the block? Look, for Mam City, I don't think it, uh, it, uh, it's only a show because of a simple reason, and I think it relates to the question that you ask about the Russian president. For him and other world, like China, they treat this matter serious as a start because they understand what it means. I don't know if others don't understand the importance, but at least I can speak for China, I can speak for Russia to say they understand the outcome of this particular project. And we might not see results immediately, but I'm confident that in the nearer future, we will thank ourselves as South Africans and nations who are forming part of the BRICS for what we would have contributed in changing world politics and economics. Indeed. Let me thank you very much uh, to Ms. Nogwane, political analyst and associate professor at UNISA, as well as uh, Dr. Kahiso Tikepoe political analyst and lecturer at Vets University. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. There you have it. Tantla Sume standing by with the news. It's gone 11 o'clock. Power News. Thank you, Tamurio. Top stories at this hour. Chairperson of the Section 194 Inquiry, Richard Kianke, says he's not surprised by the lack of response by suspended public protector, Busuem Kwebani, and BRICS You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.